Uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Uh, we'll be looking at a passage there. Um, you know, normally when a person uh, is able to preach on occasional basis, like people who, who are guests here or, or when I get the opportunity to preach, you always want to come up with something that, that's new and exciting and, and different to really leave you with. I mean, I've had a whole year to work on this. You know, there's plenty of time. But I'll tell you, and you might see by the nature of this passage, and really, it's sort of the way that the Apostle John wrote this letter, is that there's really nothing new. That what you're going to hear is bits and pieces of the old, old story, the gospel message. And there's a reason for that uh, in this passage. Now, some texts in the Bible are difficult to understand. I think many of us know that, that there's books that are written and commentators weigh in even on different sides of certain passages because they're difficult. But this is not one of those. In fact, this is one of the most straightforward texts in the entire Bible. So let's look at it. First John chapter five, and here's the word of the Lord. It says, whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony and whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed this testimony, the testimony that God has given about his son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has the life and whoever does not have the son of God does not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Then he goes on to say, and this is the confidence that we have in approaching God. Excuse me, just, (laughs) I didn't time that cough drop just right. (laughs) Remind me it's up here. I can finish it later. (laughs) Now, the way that the apostle John sets up this passage is this. He says there are two types of people. There are two groups or there there are two categories and and, and we like to do that. We like to put people in categories. Sometimes it's not good to do, but oftentimes it's just a way of identifying, a way of, of, of making sense out of people. You know, there's, there's, sometimes we have a category of the rich and the, and the poor. We have a category of someone who, who, who has a lot of uh, education and someone who might not have so much as educa- education. Or, or when we watch the news instantly, the news channel, we can say they're liberal or they're conservative or they're Republican or they're, they're Democrat. There are many ways to group people. I remember Bum Phillips, who was the coach of the Houston Oilers and the New Orleans Saints. This is before Houston moved to to Tennessee. He categorized coaches. He says there's two types of coaches. There's the coaches that are going to be, there's the coaches who were fired, and then there are coaches who are going to be fired. I think he said that right after he was was fired, you know. Well, that's what the apostle is doing. He's categorizing. And he's using God's definition. And by God's definition in this passage, there's only two types of people in the world. They're the haves and the have-nots. They're those who have the Son of God and those who do not have the Son of God. They're those who believe in the testimony of the gospel and they're those who do not believe in it. Two types. And this passage is quite clear about the type that he's addressing. Verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's writing this to believers. He's writing people who know 
Jesus Christ. He's writing people uh, in these churches. He calls them children. They're members of the family. He's writing to that group of people. Now, why does the Apostle John even take time to address? Why are these verses even here? The reason is, is because there are many churches back in that day, and the churches that he was writing to were churches in the area of what is now modern-day Turkey, and they needed assurance. They needed a shot of confidence. And the reason they needed a shot of confidence is because there was a group from within the church, smooth-talking, very eloquent people who were preaching a different gospel. They were proclaiming something better than what the church had, a new, improved way, a better way to get to God. It was based on superior knowledge. And I I can't go into all the details. If you want to label it, it's called Gnosticism, and there's many forms of it. But basically, what they're saying was this. They were teaching this superior knowledge that Jesus was actually a man. And when the Holy Spirit came upon him at baptism, he became the Messiah. He became the God-man. But then, and so he ministered as the God-man, as the Messiah for for years. And then right before he died on the cross, God left him and he was no longer the Messiah and he died as a man. Well, what's wrong with this? Well, first of all, it's not biblical and it destroys the basic gospel that clearly says Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the fact is, if Jesus was only a man and he died on the cross, then his death wouldn't be good enough. It wouldn't be sufficient to atone for our sins. It'd be like this. It'd be like, suppose there a man on death row and he was going to be executed. Then one of his friends who's also on death row said, wait, why don't you let me take his place and let him go free? Well, whoever he was talking to, the judge or the warden would say, you can't do that because you have to pay for your own crimes. You have to die for, for yours. You can't die for somebody else. The only way it would work is hypothetically is if someone came from the outside and said, I will die for those crimes because I'm innocent of those crimes. Just wouldn't work that way. It's not possible for just a man to die for the sins of another man because he's guilty too. It requires someone unique someone who kind of comes from the outside, someone who is different. And the Bible tells us that that's Jesus. And the reason he's different is that he's fully God and fully man, and it doesn't work any other way. Well, these people were, were, were starting to, there, there, there are folks in there that were believing it, folks in the church, and they were, they were beginning to follow these guys who were smooth in their presentation, who said, we've got something more. We've got something better. They're preaching a different gospel. And it wasn't the gospel that was given to them by the apostles. It wasn't the gospel that was taught to them by the apostle John and by his disciples. But the problem was, is that there were people in the church who were abandoning the church to follow this this something better way. And there were those in the church who were watching all of this going on. And they were wondering, "I I wonder if they're right. And they're wavering. And they were beginning to doubt They're losing confidence. And what they need is encouragement and assurance. And that's what John is giving to them, assurance. Well, assurance is vital. And I mean, it's just vital to life. I mean, how much much better things go, don't they, when, when, when we're confident? 
You know, how much easier is it to get, uh, to go to a job interview when say the person who is interviewing you says, this is a formality, I want you to know you've got the job. Well, that gives you assurance. How much better is it? How much more confidence would, would a high school student have is if they were going to ask someone to the prom that they knew would say yes? I remember when I was in seminary, uh, one of the classes that we were taking was an important class. And so I wanted to do well in it. So I, I studied hard and I turned in all my assignments and I'd done well on the test. And now we're getting ready for the final. And so I'd studied, prepared. We'd go into the classroom with everybody else and we sit down and the professor passes out all of the tests. And he says, before you start the test, I'm gonna uh, call out five people and I want you five people to come with me. So I'm just waiting for him to call out the five people. And one of the names he called was mine. So I'm going, what did I do? I'm going to be in trouble. I can't remember. I don't know what I did. I must have, must have done something I didn't know. So I get up and we go with the other folks and we sit down in an adjacent classroom. We sit down in the front row and he stands up at the podium and he says, this is going to be your test. We're just going to talk about the material. And I want you to know that I've chosen each one of you and I've already given you your grade. You've already made an A. Can you imagine the assurance and the confidence that I had in being able to talk about that test? I was, I was energized, and that's what assurance can do. It can encourage us. It can make us feel good. It can give us confidence. Now, by the same token, you know what it's like when our confidence is shattered or when it's shaken or when we don't have that job or when this door is closed or that door is closed or, or, or when we're on the basketball court and we, we miss a free throw and then we know we've got to shoot another one. All the people are watching, you know, or, or, or you're on the golf course and you miss a two-foot putt and you have the next one and you wonder what's going to happen then. It can become uncertain. And that's not a good place to be. Our circumstances can sometimes change. Let, let's say, for instance, that, that we put down a path from that door down the center aisle to the steps and it was this wide. It was 18 inches wide. And we said, okay, how many of you would like to try to walk down that path from those doors and make it all the way down to the front. Well, I'll bet you that most, if not all of us, could volunteer because it would be no problem to walk that straight line down that path in the center aisle. But let's say your circumstances change. Let's say we take that 18-inch wide path and we put it on the top of the corner of Clark Tower. Now, how confident are you? It's still the same path, but your circumstances have changed. And that's what can happen. Our circumstances might change. Uh, and, and as a result, whatever it is, we can doubt. And when we doubt, we can lose our confidence. And we can lose our confidence in our thoughts. We can lose our confidence in our ability and our motivation. We can lose heart. And sometimes we go through periods where we lose or become in danger because of doubt of losing our confidence in Christ and even the assurance of our salvation can sometimes be challenged by doubt. You know, I'll bet many of us, if we were honest, <clears throat> either for a short period of time, maybe just an instant, or maybe a season of time, if we're honest, at some point in our lives, we have doubted or we've questioned our faith. You know, how did it get that way? Might get that way because there's questions that sometimes we can't really answer. Like, like, why would a loving God allow that to happen and allow it to happen again and allow it to happen again? 
Or maybe we get a little shaken because we find ourselves um, looking at something or doing something or thinking thoughts that aren't very Godward. Or maybe we can have our faith shaken because we compare ourselves with others. Well, they seem to be happy all the time. You know, they seem to be praising the Lord. They seem to be lifting their hands. And, and you know, I just, I just don't always feel that way. Sometimes I'm a little sad. I'm not like them. And we compare and it makes us wonder. Or maybe we just go through a period of time where the embers of our life, the passion of knowing the Lord, the, the, the embers are, are just burning low. They can grow dim. And we can doubt. Or maybe we doubt because... Uh, we're living a life where we are really living in disagreement with God. We're not living uh, doing what he wants us to do, doing what is best for us. And consequently, when we walk down that path for an extended period of time, then our assurance is going to go down and our question is going to rise and doubt will happen. Whatever it is, we can doubt. And maybe that's happened to you. It can rob you of your joy. It can take away your energy. It can cripple our faith reducing it to what I call a faith that is just a, a powerless maybe. It doesn't really have any consequences in our life. So the apostle John, the, the, the elderly grandfather by this time, the bishop, you know, he had to be in his 80s or 90s by the time this letter was written. The guy who had been with Jesus, he had walked with him, he had talked with him, he had rested his head upon his bosom and he's he is the guy that's writing to these churches because these people in here were, were lacking. They were doubting. And he's writing to encourage them. He's writing to, 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 to assure them in knowing the Son of God, to let them know that, that God has given us eternal life and that is the testimony. You see, it's just the old, old story. Guys, you don't need, he says, he says, you don't need something new or something different. You need to remember that old, old story. You don't need some kind of superior knowledge. Life is found in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, and it is found nowhere else. So he's pretty straightforward. He's saying, dear church, I write these things to you so that you may know, in other words, so that you may have a settled persuasion, a complete assurance that you may know that you have eternal life. He says, guys, you've got it. You have the testimony. It's right there. And you have no reason to doubt. So there's two questions that are before us today. And the questions are these. The first question is, what is eternal life? What is eternal life? What does that mean? What does it make you think about? And the second question is, how can we know then we have the son. He says, he who has the son has the life. So they've got to be connected pretty closely. So the first one, eternal life. What, what is eternal life? You know, when we think of the word eternity, what do we think of? You know, there's people who say that they're, you know, we use the phrase eternal truths or we use the phrase um, uh, timeless treasures or, uh, or just the idea that, that uh, it's perpetual, eternal, is never ending. It's eternal. It means forever. It means a long time. You know, it means people living a long time. Maybe you've seen movies that have come out that, 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 uh, that that's the theme. You know, um, uh, Justin Timberlake had a movie out a few years ago called Time. And in the movie, time becomes a commodity like money. And everybody's wanting time 
so that they could live a long time, that they could live forever. They could live in eternity. Maybe there's old, you, you've seen the old TV show or the movie uh, about a, a Scottish guy called Highlander, and then he would live and go from time period to time period, and everybody would die, but he wouldn't die because he was, he was uh, uh, living eternally. And so we think when we hear the word eternity, we think quantity of time. But there's a truth, and it's this. Time is not eternal. Only God is eternal. I mean, the world, people, thoughts, the universe, only God has no beginning and no end. So then somehow eternal must refer to God because he is the only one who actually is eternal. Eternal life. So there's three things that we can talk about that we can say when it comes to defining eternal life. The first one is is this. Eternal life is a different life. It's God's life. To say that a person has eternal life means that we have life with God. It involves a personal relationship. Whoever has the son, whoever knows the son, it's a personal relationship where we share in the fellowship between the father and the son and the Holy Spirit, the love that is lavished in the throne room of God, that we're partakers of that the love that's lavished by the Father and the Son. Even First Peter, in fact, calls it that. When he describes eternal life, he says that, that we are partakers and participators in the divine nature. In Galatians 2.20, says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ who lives in me, eternal life. Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 also explains it this way. He says, if anyone is in Christ then they are a new creature. Eternal life is God's life. We're born again to new life. That's eternal life. It's his life. So eternal life is God's life. It's a different life. Number two, eternal life is a present life. It's not something just to look forward to in the future, though that's a wonderful thing to do, that the day is gonna come when we're face-to-face in in heaven with God and we're able to enjoy him in a way that that we're not able to enjoy him now because we will be changed and it will be a wonderful, wonderful experience. It'll be amazing. The fact that there'll be no anxiety, there'll there'll be no rush, that we will be at complete peace, that we will be so enamored with our heavenly father and his light that it will be absolutely amazing. And that's something to look forward to. But it's not exclusively that. Eternal life is a present life. If you look at how the word belief is used, if you look in John chapter three, where it says, uh, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Or if you look in other places, John five or John six, or you look throughout this little letter, the five chapters that John is writing to these churches, you find the word believe. And the unique thing about that word is that it's always in the present tense. He who believes in the son has the life. The focus of eternal life is not just on the future, but it's on our current standing in Christ. Eternal life is God's life. Eternal life is a present life. Then thirdly, eternal life is a gift. Three times in this chapter, that's how it describes eternal life. That God gives us the testimony. That God gives us eternal life. Eternal life is a gift. Think about 
the greatest gift that you've been, you've received. You know, somebody special might've given you a gift or it's a very valuable gift. You know, I, I, I consider this watch perhaps the most valuable gift that I have. It's a, it's a good watch. And I know the person who gave it to me and I really enjoy it. You know, I wear it and I, I, I look at it to see, and y'all not gonna get out of here till about 1230 at the rate we're going. You know, I can tell the time or I can, um, you know, I, I, keep it, I, I keep it clean, you know, because I really, I really like it, you know, and I, I enjoy wearing it. I do all these things because I enjoy the gift. I don't clean my watch and wear my watch and tell time on my watch as a way of earning this gift. I do it because I have already received this gift and I enjoy it very, very much. Eternal life is a gift. We don't do things to earn that gift. We do things out of gratitude because we enjoy this gift of eternal life. So what John is saying is this. Guys, have confidence. You can be assured because I have observed you and I can tell you that you have the gift. You have the gift of eternal life. Eternal life. It's God's life. It's a present life, and it's a gift. Now, how can we be assured then that we have the Son? Because it says, he who has the Son has the life, so it makes sense to me that we need to understand what that, what that means, what that phrase means. How can we come to this, this settled persuasion, you know, this, this security that we possess eternal life, and by doing so, all the power and all the benefits that come from knowing the Son of God. How can we know that we're secure in the arms of our Heavenly Father? We know it by faith. Verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe, there it is, in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have life with God, that you have eternal life. Faith, it's through faith that we can know. So then what is faith? What does that mean? How do you explain that? You know, in one sense, we can say that people demonstrate faith every day. You know, you, you woke up this morning, I'll bet. And well, you did because you're here. Uh, what I mean is you looked in the mirror, I bet. And then after seeing what you saw, you believed that if you did certain things to your hair, like you comb stuff out of your hair or put stuff in your hair or, or you, you, you wash stuff out of your face or put stuff on your face, you believed if you did that, then you would like the way you look a whole lot better. And so you saw the mirror, you acted upon it by faith, and then you improved your appearance. You acted on your belief. Then you got time to come to church. So you got in the car because you believed that your car would get you here to church. So you drove to church, you got in the car, you believed, you acted on your belief. You believed that when you sat down in this pew, that the pew would hold you up. So you sat down, you acted on your belief. That's faith. Believe, become persuaded, rest in, rest upon. Those are the words that are used to describe the biblical definition of faith, or at least partially. I say partially because though that faith is, if you're saying, is this what faith is? I'd have to say yes, but it's limited. Faith is more than that. Faith isn't the same as believing in the sun. Now listen, you know, even, even a squirrel has some uh, uh, idea of faith or he wouldn't leap from branch to branch because he believes that those branches are gonna hold him up. 
He's born with it. So to understand biblical faith, I think we have to dig a little bit deeper. And one of the passages that we're probably familiar with that explains faith is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. I'll just read it to you. It describes biblical faith in this way. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It says, for by it people of old received their commendation. Then it says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So there's three words here. Faith is an assurance. Faith is a conviction. And faith is an understanding, an assurance. I might not know everything, but I know some things. And some of the things that I know about God and about Jesus Christ and about me are true. And I know them. And I cannot believe otherwise. There's confidence there. There's assurance there. And then there's a conviction. It's a conviction that, 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 that is constantly developing in our lives that God is who he says he is, that he's true, and then what he says is true. There's an assurance and there's a conviction. And then there's a growing understanding of how things really are, that God is who he says he is, that God is true, and we're learning more about that, and that he is completely involved in creation and that he is involved providentially in the world. And it's a greater, a growing understanding that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is indeed the son of God, an assurance, a conviction, and a growing understanding. I can describe faith in this way. Biblical faith is living your life in agreement with God and in response to his purpose and plan. It's living your life in agreement with God and in response to his purpose and plan. It's agreeing with God. If you can say, I'm a sinner who needs a savior, then you're walking in agreement with God. If you confess that Jesus is your savior and you believe in the name of the son of God, then you're walking in agreement with God. If you know that, that you can't walk in agreement with God without his help and you ask for his help, then you're walking in agreement with God. If you, if you realize or become aware of an attitude or of an action uh, in your life that isn't pleasing to God and you agree with him that that's not pleasing to him and you tell him that is called confession and you thank him that he's already forgiven you for that and you seek his help to turn from it, well, then you're walking in agreement with God. Faith means accepting whatever God gives us is from his providential hand. It's the hand of the God who is light and he is love and we know that his plan is backed by who he is and we're good with that. But you know what? Not everyone has that. There are those that have the son and don't have the, don't have the son. And you might know people who know the word of God and they can, they can quote scripture maybe even better than you can and they, 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 they can talk about it, but they don't have faith. You don't see anything in their lives. They don't come close to living it. The Pharisees were like that. I remember I was in, uh, a number of years ago, I was on the beach, and, and I was sharing the gospel the best I could with a lifeguard, and we we're having a really good conversation. And in the conversation, as we're getting to know each other, and I begin, you know, sharing how, how you know, God is real. Um, you're a sinner, 
God has a remedy, and that's Jesus Christ. We talked about why that is. And then after talking for a while, I said, I said, well, do you believe that? Do you believe in God? And he says, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, hard to deny. Um, well, do you believe that, you, that you, you're a sinner and you're, you have a need there? He goes, well, yeah, I do. And do you believe that Jesus is the one that's, that, that, that God gave us to meet that need? And he goes, uh, yeah. I said, well, would you like to respond and take that gift of Jesus Christ so you might have eternal life? And he said, no, I just can't. I thought, you, you know it, or you say you know it, but he didn't have it. Well, why is that? Well, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, familiar passage. I told you, you weren't going to gain anything new here. Very old passage that most of us know. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. What is the gift? Salvation is a gift, and the faith to believe is also a gift from God. And it's evidenced by our obedience. And what is that? Obedience is nothing more than responding to the giver of the greatest gift in the world. And in obedience, what we're doing is we're saying, I agree that, that your precepts and that your promises are given to me for a reason. They're to protect and to provide. And I agree that what you say and that your will and that your path, the best I can figure out, that that, that, that leads to my greatest satisfaction that I can have in life. And so with your help, I will follow you. Kenneth Weist, who is a, a Bible scholar, he said this. He took that passage, Hebrews chapter 11, 1, and he translated this way. He said, now faith is the title deed of things hoped for, the proof of things which are not being seen. Title deed. You know what a title deed is? It means you're, if you have a title deed, that means you're the owner or the possessor of whatever the uh, title deed says. Faith is the title deed to eternal life. And you know why that is? Because on that title deed, the guarantor or the cosigner of that title deed is Jesus Christ himself. Do you believe in the name of the Son? It's present tense, you know? Some people, they claim that they need to, you know, and it's really a good idea that you need to know the day and the hour because sometimes when you're having a difficult time, it's always good to point, no, I remember, I made my stand, I nailed my stake in the ground. I remember that exact point in time when I invited Jesus to come into my life, when I became a believer, when I became a Christian. But the problem is, we don't always know that. We don't always know our spiritual birthday. I bet there's people here when you can say, and I'm not really sure when it was. There might be people here that say, uh, um, I've always believed. I can't really point to a time. You know, and we hear these wonderful testimonies about, yes, right then and there. And we go, whoa, you have to have that? What? Well, I can't exactly remember the day either, you know. Um, I grew up in a, an Episcopal Baptist world in the South, down in Louisiana, you could say, and I was a church goer. So I heard all the Sunday school stories in my Episcopal church, but then in the Baptist church that I went to, because all my friends were there, that I knew that I needed to make a decision for Christ, you know. I thought, well, maybe I've already done that, and I was, I was too embarrassed to to walk the aisle. 
And I even remember in high school, I watched my friend, a classmate of mine in high school. His, his name was Harold Smith. And he walked the aisle almost every Sunday. And I thought, how many times does he need to walk the aisle in order to be, in order to be saved? And I tell you, if I was ever a preacher and all of a sudden they were going to put me on commission, I would want a bunch of Harold Smiths in my congregation because I would be doing quite well. And I asked my friend, Jim. Jim was a valedictorian of our class. I decided I would ask him because I was kind of thinking about this. And uh, I said, Jim, uh, are you a Christian? And he goes, yeah, I'm a Christian. So I thought, you know, if Jim is a Christian, I must be one too because I'm as at least as good as he is. And if he's a Christian, then I must be one too. I'm just going to take his word for it. Then into college, Went from a big fish in a small pond to a small fish in a big pond. And I remember going to um, uh, a management class. And in the class, the professor wanted everybody to come by so he could get to know the people that were in this class. And I went by his office and I started talking to him. And we were talking about, you know, where are you from? What do you like to do? Just kind of getting to know each other. Where do you go to church? And then he asked me if I was a Christian. And I, I thought for a minute and I said, well, yeah. But I left thinking... If I am, why did I, have a, why did I have to hesitate? I also read a book on, on the end times right about that time. And, you know, it's one of those books that said, Jesus is going to come back and you better be ready. And I wanted to be ready. I wanted to have that insurance somehow. And then another teacher came by my dorm room and he shared the gospel message with me. He shared that, 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 that God is real, just like I shared with that life card, that God is, you know, few years later, that God is real, that I'm a sinner, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and that I can, I can enter into a relationship with him. And I began thinking about that. And so that, that night, whenever it was, I prayed at my desk in my dorm room. I said, God, I can run my life, but you're God, and I need you. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for my sins, and now may I begin a relationship with you. And I prayed that prayer the next night. And I prayed it the next night, three nights in a row. And it finally dawned on me that if I, if I really expressed my heart's desire like that, it didn't matter the words, but what mattered was that, that if, 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 if I asked him to come in, then he was gonna come in in my heart. I think that was sometime around February of 1976. Well, that summer though, school's out, rolls around. I really didn't care anything about being obedient, about following through on this decision. Oh, I thought about God from time to time, but my life was anything but what it was supposed to be. And then I remember late that summer, a friend invited me to go to a Christian conference. I said, I don't want to do that. I'm just not really that interested in it. So that's where I was. That fall, I did go to a conference, a little weekend retreat. And at that retreat, I said, Lord, the best I know how Whatever it looks like, I'm going to uh, devote my life to you, and I need your help big time to help me do that. Now, is that when I became a Christian? And then later on, some friends of mine, and I didn't know, they said that you need to be baptized. And so uh, I went to the, the pastor of the church where I was attending, and, and I said, do I need to be baptized? And he gave me this great bit of wisdom. He said, you do. And I said, well, why? He said, well, there's just something about going under that water and coming up looking like a wet puppy. Well, and I did. I looked like a wet puppy. Was I saved then? Was I saved that fall earlier? 
Was I saved back in high school? Was I saved when I first prayed in Hutchinson Dorm back in 1976? I don't really know. I don't know when I was saved, but I know this. I know that Jesus is my Savior now. And the fact is, if I'm saved at all, it's because somewhere beyond the annals of time, God placed his favor upon me. And then when the time was right, he sent his son who, who joyfully condescended to live on earth and live a life that we cannot live and die in the place that I deserve to die in. And he rose again, completing that work of atoning for my sin, conquering the penalty of death, all for my salvation. And I'm fully confident that he is able to keep. See, my assurance is not based on some time in the past, but it is certain and it's secure because Jesus is my savior. And if I doubt, like any other sin, I can take it and I can lay it at the foot of the cross knowing that he died 2,000 years ago that he is my advocate according to 1 John 2. He is my advocate, my lawyer. He is speaking up for me in the throne room of God. So let me ask you, and I don't sound like a revival preacher who says, are you saved? But are you? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you desire to walk with him in agreement? If you do, that's a gift of God. Because everything we get in the Christian life comes as a gift that we get by grace through faith. It's his grace that makes it available, and it's our faith that accepts it. And so whenever doubt comes, turn to him. And you know, just the fact that we turn to him is evidence of him working in our life. It's evidence of belief. And whenever attitudes or actions occur in our lives, they emerge and they're not, they're not the kind that are pleasing to God, we walk with him by confessing, by agreeing and be grateful that he has died for that very attitude or action that you're guilty of. And that even your very faith to believe is a gift of God. He holds the title deed and Jesus is our advocate. And you know, I'll end on this. You know what amazes me? What amazes me is then when I get to thinking about it, you know, we're, if you're a believer, your aim is to please God. And we don't always do it that well. But what amazes me is that we can please God at all. That we're, we're fallen and we're sinful and we're finite and we're selfish and we're broken. The fact that we can even please God at all, this holy God, this God who is too pure to look upon sin, but we can please him. And what's even more, what's even greater is that not only can we please him, but that he is pleased with every believer because they're members of his family. Indeed, he has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. And how can you experience that assurance that, that the apostle John is talking about? We walk in agreement with our heavenly father and then we rest in the giver. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given us eternal life, and this life is a gift, and this life is found in your Son and in all that he did to secure our salvation. 
And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who, who, who is thinking about it but has not yet um, taken that opportunity to respond to that gift, maybe they still have some questions or something like that. Lord, I pray that you would, that, that they would see that just their thinking about it is indication that, that, that you're working in their lives. Father, I pray that for those among us who, who, who may even be going through a period of doubt, a period where our embers are low or our assurances is down. Father, I pray that as we reach out to you, that we would, we would be able to experience the gift of eternal life, the life with you, and we'd be able to experience presently that different life that you promised through your son. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness towards us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.